1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA Pacifica Radio. Nora Ephron passed away on June 26, 2012. The author of several novels, screenplay writer, director of films such as *Sleepless in Seattle*, *You've Got Mail*, and *Julian Julia*, political commentator, essayist. Nora Ephron was an American icon. I had a chance to speak with her on November twenty-first, two 2010, about her collection of essays, I Remember Nothing. Nora Ephron, these are a series of short essays. What prompts you to actually write an essay like these? Are they assignments, or just you sit down and go, I've got to talk about this?
0: No, none of them was an assignment. I think that a few years ago, when I started writing I feel bad about my neck. The impulse was that I was going through something that I thought nobody was really writing about in any honest way. People are always writing books about how these are your golden years. You know, how are you never better? Well, that is just not true. And it isn't just that you feel bad about your neck, And a variety of other things no one ever tells you are going to happen, like the complete decline of your elbows. But, you know, people get sick, you start losing friends. And I think my impulse came out of, you know, a sense that it should be written about. Now, of course, I'd grown up with parents who were writers who thought everything should be written about. That's the way they dealt with all the things in our life, is that they would say to us, everything is copy, everything is material, you'll turn this into a story someday. So it seemed perfectly logical for me to start writing about it. And this book, I had more things to say. And I thought it would be fun to write about memory and what happens to it when you get to your 60s and later. And then I thought I would even write a little bit sort of memoirs, even though the moment when you're losing your memory is perhaps not the best moment to be writing your memoirs, but that's when (laughs) most people do it. So that's what it all came out of.
1: I've interviewed a lot of well-known people over the years, and I've met a lot of people. I think what happened to me as I was reading that particular essay on forgetting, I remember in 1978, I was at a science fiction convention, and I was corralled by Philip K. Dick, the great science fiction writer. For 45 minutes, we had a chat. I don't remember a thing about it.
0: I know. I know. I know. This is what's so mortifying is that— Yet you have retrieved so little, and sometimes what you've retrieved is so trivial, you are mortified. I was there when the Beatles came to America. I was a newspaper reporter. I covered basically their first week in America. It was the beginning of the 60s, the night on the Ed Sullivan show that they sang. The 60s began. I was there, and I couldn't hear a thing. And That is what I remember.
1: I think it happens to everybody at some point. I I, I interviewed uh, Kitty Carlisle just before she died by phone, and she was able to recount stories to me about the Gershwins, but then I'd ask her a question which forced her to think, and her answer every time was, I don't remember, and I realized that I think what happens when you get older is you wind up remembering the anecdote but not the original event.
0: That is certainly true. But don't forget, Kitty Carlisle, when you were talking to her, was 94 years old. And she was always my idol in terms of how lucky you can get when you get older because her legs were so gorgeous. You would see her in New York out to dinner in a skirt slit up to her upper thigh, and you just would— go, oh, my God, please let my legs look that good if I'm lucky enough to get to 94. And she really had a very good grip for a long time. A few years ago, I read about Ryan O'Neill being at the funeral of his ex-wife, Farrah Fawcett, and there was a very attractive younger woman at it whom he made a pass at, and it turned out to be his own daughter, whom he did not recognize. And everyone was very judgmental about this. They were just trashing Ryan up and down. Not me, not me. I had just been in a mall in Las Vegas when a very attractive woman came up to me with her arms outstretched. And I thought, who is this woman? Where do I know her from? I like her, but I don't can't get her name. And it was my sister. And you could say, well, how are you to know that your sister was going to be in this mall? But I was meeting her in the mall at the very place that she was coming up to greet me. So, you know, it can happen to
1: anyone. One salient feature of the entire book, and I think it's the reason why every single essay resonated with me, is that you're hitting on things that we all think about. But none of us actually put into words, because sometimes it's just too embarrassing. If someone says, you hung out with Philip K. Dick, what did he say? What am I supposed to say?
0: I know. I know. It is embarrassing. And the, and that thing that happens when you're trying to retrieve it, not that you can ever retrieve what happened between you and Philip K. Dick, because right. like me, your life has been wasted on you. but. That thing where there is a fact you can't come up with, who was in that movie, what was the name of that movie, and you're just sitting there snapping your fingers and smacking your heads, and you can pull out your phone and Google the answer. You know, Googling has saved many of us from really looking like the geezers we are because <laughs> we seem hip enough to be able to use the Internet
1: Nora Ephron, in looking up your life, I found out that there's a film called Take Her, She's Mine, where one of the main characters was based on you when you were 22 years old, that your parents had used you as fodder for their own screenplay. How did that feel?
0: Well, as I said to you, we grew up being told that everything is copy, and we knew that's what writers did. And it is, by the way, what writers do. It wasn't just my parents. When I was about 10, I think, my sister Delia, my beloved sister Delia, got her head stuck in the, between the banister rails in our house, and the Beverly Hills police had to come and extricate her from it. About less than a year later, that episode was in a Jimmy Stewart movie that my parents wrote. Natalie Wood... At the time, a little 10-year-old got her head stuck in the Bannister Rails, at a crisis moment in this comedy. I thought, well, that's what you do when you're a writer. And I went off to college in the East. My parents wrote a play called Take Her, She's Mine. They even used my letters in it. And I thought, that's what writers do. And by the way, it is still what I believe. I mean, I, at a certain point in my life, it crossed my mind— that they never said, oh, by the way, hope you don't mind, but. Right. but we understood the rules in our house. And I very much believe that, you know, if you know writers, watch out, because if you say something funny, or if you have a really catastrophic divorce, it could end up if you don't write it, they might. I remember years ago, years and years ago, a very well-known screenwriter in Hollywood woke up one night and discovered he had just gotten a divorce and he discovered he was tied up in bed and a burglar was going through his closet, actually a robber, not a burglar. And the robber said to him, hey, man, where's your stuff? And my friend said... I just got a divorce, and the robber said, well, where's your wife, man? And, you know, it was just a very funny story. We all loved the story of someone waking up with an empty closet being asked, where's your stuff? And the story went around. It was a well-known person it happened to, and everybody knew it. Everybody thought, i got to remember that story. That's a really good story. And John Gregory Dunn, my friend John Gregory Dunn, put it into a novel. He took that screenwriter's story, which I think probably was used in many other screenplays, but the novel came out first. So John Dunn got the story. Now, if that screenwriter had wanted the story for himself, he should not have told it to all of his friends who were writers— But it was gone and taken by someone else. And those are the rules of writing. It's open season out there, and they'll do anything.
1: To that degree, something like heartburn wouldn't bother you at all because it's just simply part of your family history to tell the story.
0: Well, that's what I think, yeah. My mother always said, someday this will be funny. And you could say, well, that's a very cold way to bring up children, that they come to you with a sad thing and what you say to them instead of saying, oh, I feel so bad for you, honey, is come back when it's a story. Make this funny the sooner the better. That may seem cold, but it is a fantastic way to grow up in terms of learning that if you can get over something, it's good because your parents will love you. As you know, I'm sure you know from having been in therapy, we carry around the need to get our parents' approval with us long after they're gone. And that was a way that all four of us knew we could get their approval is if we could make them laugh.
1: And a lot of material that's come out since, of course, takes material from your own lives and does that, not just heartburn, but hanging up as well. I mean, I guess it it permeates all of the work of you and your sisters.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Nora Ephron, you were speaking with Philip Maldery on KPFA Sunday show, and you made an amazing comment about journalism. Journalism is a job where you figure out what the important points should be in any story. And I keep thinking that maybe the problem with America today is that nobody believes that anymore or very few people do.
0: I don't know about that, but I do think that we're a lot more savvy about journalism now than I was when I was 14 years old and in that journalism class. And we know that there are all kinds of points that can be pulled out of the same facts. We are less romantic about journalism, all of us, not just those of us who went into the business because it was so romantic.
1: Maybe what happened was that somewhere along the line, someone realized that those points could also be political propaganda, and suddenly the points changed. You know,
0: journalists are always saying it's the first draft of history and it's the truth and blah, blah, blah. But but it isn't the truth. It's a story. It's always a story. It's always how you choose to tell the story. It's always what you think the point of the story is. We're now in this horrible world where we have in front of us such a clear example on the news, on Fox, of the story being twisted in our opinion, in my opinion, in the opinion of, of 99.9% of my friends. I can't think of who the other 0.1% even is. You know, where we have an entire network and newspapers, it also owns. Twisting things. And this, by the way, this is one of the reasons people are smarter about journalism, is that they can see how easy it is to twist things.
1: Nora Ephron, you got your first screenwriting gig working on a screenplay of All the President's Men, which was written co-written by uh, your then husband. They didn't use the screenplay, but you got your first gig through that. Can you talk a little about that process and how you learned to write a screenplay?
0: The first draft of All the President's Men was written by William Goldman and the next draft after that, by the way. But Carl and Bob didn't like it. They didn't really feel that it worked. And they decided it should be rewritten and Carl and I sat down and did a draft of it, which by the way we should never have done. It was not a good thing to do. But here was the good part is that I did the typing and I had to retype many scenes by William Goldman which were fine. And they were not only fine, they were written by an absolutely great screenwriter. And years later, I read an interview with a man named Harry Cruz, a fiction writer who was pretty well known in the 70s and 80s. And he had not had any real education and certainly no training as a writer. And he read Moby Dick. And he thought it was so great that he typed it five times, the entire book. And he said when he got through, he could write. And that's what happened with me and rewriting Bill Goldman, is that typing his script, I suddenly understood what a screenplay was. I understood how economical it had to be, because he is the master of the economical scene. I understood that people don't walk in and out of doors that they're there already, that the scene is distilled down to its essence, that if you can do it in a one line or three lines or six lines, that is better than writing four or five pages, which you can never do in a screenplay. And it was like going to film
1: school. In some respects, I think that's what I remember nothing is. It's everything is distilled down to those specific sentences where less is more. Stephen Sondheim said that in writing his work, he learned less is more and God is in the details.
0: Oh, God's, and which are completely conflicting on some level. But, right. But yes, those are two great lessons.
1: You're listening to an interview with Nora Ephron, whose latest book collection of essays is titled I Remember Nothing Nora Ephron in terms of tackling various projects what brought you to silkwood
0: what brought me to silkwood was that i had written some screenplays and people knew i could write a screenplay even though only one of them had been made for television and it wasn't any good but the script wasn't bad and my agent Sam Cohn, who was sort of my agent, and the woman he worked with at ICM, Arlene Donovan, had gotten a call from their client, their very important client, Meryl Streep, saying that she was interested in doing a movie about Karen Silkwood. And Arlene and Sam thought I would be a good person to do it because they knew I had been a journalist for so long. And this seemed like something that you needed that skill set. So they called up and said, do you want to do something on Karen Silkwood for Meryl Streep? And I said, absolutely. And I asked my friend Alice Arlen if she wanted to write it with me because I had small children and I was a little unsure about how much time I was going to be able to be in places like Oklahoma City where all the court papers are. That all worked out. And uh, that's how I did it. I mean, it was this automatic thing. I knew... I knew the story of Karen Silkwood. As it turned out, I didn't know it at all. That was an amazing thing, was was doing the reporting and discovering that everything written about her had been wrong. Everything. The left-wing stuff was wrong and the right-wing stuff was wrong. Nobody had really dealt with her as, as the very interesting, complex person she was not necessarily, you know, a cartoon heroine in any way and yet a person who did the right thing. So we went to work on it and by a miracle it got
1: made. When you see the final product of a film that you've written but you didn't direct and you had no control over it, how do you feel afterward? Do you feel this sense of accomplishment or this sense of kind of disgust because they didn't do what you wanted to do?
0: On Silkwood and on Heartburn and on When Harry Met Sally, I was very much involved. I worked with directors who liked writers and who thought writers should be part of the process, which did not mean I had control over them. But although, by the way, control is a a kind of hilarious word when you talk about making a movie because you don't ever really—it's like a train that you can barely keep running on the track— But then, you know, you make a movie that doesn't quite work. And that's the moment you feel frustrated. That's the moment you think oh, I wish I had directed that. I could have done just as bad a job as the person who did, and I would have gotten paid a lot more money than I did for just writing it. So that's one of the impulses that made me want to direct.
1: When you finally got the chance to direct, you'd been around filmmaking enough. Did you just suddenly fit in, or was that first one a horror?
0: No, the first one was really fun because I thought— I actually thought I could direct a movie, which is ridiculous. I couldn't. But I knew, you know, I was prepared, and I knew that you said action at the beginning of the scene and cut at the end of it. And I had storyboarded the movie, so I had an idea about what I wanted the scene to look like.
1: So you knew you were going to sit down and storyboard, taking the screenplay and storyboarding.
0: Yes, e- even though a lot of the directors I worked with didn't storyboard at all. But people said storyboard, it's good on your first movie. And the truth is I could never make a movie without
1: storyboarding. You find everything out when you storyboard. And storyboarding is just different scene, is, the beginning of you, scenes?
0: No, it, you basically draw a picture of what's in your head for a scene and almost every cut in that scene.
1: So by the time you're filming it, it's sort of like a novel where you've done such a detail.
0: it's It's like a graphic novel. Exactly. That's what it's like. If I were doing this interview in a movie, which would not be great because of the limitations of this set, but, you know, you would draw a picture of the camera in that control room out there looking through the mirror at the two of us. And then you would draw a picture of you over my shoulder and a picture of me over your shoulder. And then you'd write plus two close-ups. And that would be your storyboard of the scene. It's a very simple elementary scene that would only require five shots. But, you know, it means that it helps you when you're scouting locations because you know what you need. You know that you need a shot from a long way away in certain scenes. So that you've got to find something you can do that with. It helps the location people. You start to find out what the picture is about, what the movie's about visually when you do that to a much greater extent than you do when you're just writing the screenplay.
1: I mean, what happens if you're doing that and you go, "Holy cow! I'm supposed to start in X number of weeks. The finances there, the actors are in place, and something isn't working."
0: You try very hard not to be making a movie that the script isn't done. I mean, that's one of the first things I learned making a movie, is make sure the script is done. And if the script isn't done, make sure you're working with your sister Delia so that she can fix it while you're working on it. I mean, I have this very clear memory of standing out in the street in Seattle— and calling Delia and saying, this scene is not working and my brain is fried. What are we going to do? And we fixed it on the phone in two minutes and I walk back in. I couldn't have done it by myself.
1: In terms of all of your films, I mean, there's a wonderful section. Again, everything is distilled and I Remember Nothing. There's a wonderful section about flops and dealing with flops dealing with movies that don't work. You know, in my head, I'm thinking I've seen virtually all of Nora Ephron's films. And, of course, to me, the one that came to mind is Bewitched.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On a film like that, at what point do you realize, uh-oh, or do you never get that way until it actually opens?
0: Well, I think you start to realize it the first time you test it. But if you're me, I'm very optimistic and Many, many people in the movie business, there's such a belief that you can fix it, that if you just reshoot this or if you just cut that or if you change the music, you do everything you possibly can in the hopes that you can fix it. And by the way, I have had movies that we fixed. We had a movie that didn't test well. And I knew it wasn't actually me. My sister Delia once again said, the reason this movie isn't working is that we're not cutting to this actor. We're playing too many scenes in the wide shot. And we went through and we recut the movie. And it was a complete day and night difference.
1: Bringing in close on the actor, nothing else. The
0: actor that the audience loved and they Uh. weren't feeling They weren't with him in it in the way that you need to be and that you can be if you have the footage.
1: That, I guess, immediately teaches you what you have to do for the future.
0: Well, no, it doesn't, if only it teaches you. I mean, it certainly teaches you not to stay wide all the time if you're making a movie that people want to make an emotional connection to. But the truth is that almost everything you ever learn about failure is not particularly applicable to the next failure, and the real lesson you want to learn from failure, which is how not to ever have another one, the only way to never have another failure is never to do anything again, which is the worst lesson you can learn, or worse even, to do the safest thing you can possibly do, which doesn't guarantee a hit either. You know, all these books get written about failure and how you learn through failure and growth through failure. Growth is one of my favorite words. But the main thing you learn through failure is that it's entirely possible you could have another failure. And that is the sad lesson of failure.
1: Nora Ephron, not that long ago, I interviewed Gail Collins about her book on changes in the women's movement. And she kept bringing up your name. It comes up in the book as you were one of the leading feminists of the 60s and 70s. I know you wrote the column for Esquire, But it seems to me more that the role model that you presented of somebody who could actually break into the business and still maintain yourself and your sanity is what's key.
0: I was a journalist covering the women's movement, and I was completely sympathetic to it, except that I kept seeing things that I wasn't sympathetic to or that I thought were funny when no one else did or whatever. But its goals were the same as mine. And Gail interviewed me for the book, and I remembered quite a bit about some of the things she was writing about. Well, I didn't remember that much, but I remembered enough to be helpful to her. <laughs> and so, I think that's sort of what she's thinking about. Well, it, it, it's. But I was never kind of in the women's movement in the way that people were I was I was just writing about it.
1: Well I, I also think that a lot of people probably a lot of women would probably say I, th- the same thing is I was on the outside when in point of fact you were the pioneers.
0: Well we were there. we were definitely there and I was there at a lot of the events at the historic events of the second phase of the of the women's movement and I wrote about most of them.
1: And and then you know you became a, a director at a time when very few women were directing. Yes, this is true. How did that? I mean, did you have any roadblocks being a woman, or at that point was your success as a screenwriter kind of overwhelmed the fact that that the prejudices existed?
0: I think that that if you have a big hit movie, somebody may let you direct. One. And I had written When Harry Met Sally. So so I had a shot at directing. And because a woman was the head of a studio, a woman named Dawn Steele, she called up and said, I want you to direct something. I didn't, I didn't hear from any men, but I did hear from her. She was then fired. My movie was in a sad unproduced state, and a man who ran the studio made it, Joe Roth. So it's not a simple, you know, it's not only because of a woman that I got my shot at directing.
1: Well, the actual idea of putting together a movie, do you have, I mean, right now, how many projects do you have going that you're hoping someday you'll be able to direct?
0: Oh, I don't know. A couple a couple, and I have a play that I'm ho- that I'm hoping I get a director
1: for. But w- when when you say that, uh, are these screenplays that that already exist now, or what's the status? And no, they're not. No,
0: no, no. But there's uh, two I'm about to write.
1: And and is that pretty normal? I mean, when when you're going for it, are you looking for funding, or are you are no. you doing pitching? How does?
0: No, no, no. That's all stuff that's set up at studios.
1: So you pretty much know that when you decide you want to do it, you're going to do it.
0: Yes, if I want to, sure.
1: Do you want to?
0: Well, I have no idea till I finish writing it.
1: <laughs> Nora Ephron. Let me see where I am. Do you think print is dead?
0: I don't. I don't know. Um, I. You know. I, I don't honestly know. Print is definitely going through some, some horrible thing. And the fact that I still read a newspaper, I still read, in fact, four newspapers every morning, does not reassure me in the least because I have very smart sons who are adults who read the New York Times on the Internet— So if that is true, does that make print dead, or does it just mean that print has moved off paper and onto another medium? I don't know the answer anymore. Um, Is journalism dead? Another question that's almost more serious than whether print is dead in some weird way in that in that the newspapers that are in trouble are cutting back or folding, and there's much less really great long-term journalism going on. But magazines were supposed to be dead about five years ago, and they're not. They're really not. People buy magazines. People like magazines. The magazines that are surviving are finding an audience, they have advertisers, they're able to monetize themselves in a way that a lot of the successful things on the internet haven't quite figured out how to do. It's a very complicated thing. I have a Kindle. Um, I read books on the Kindle. I buy books also. That's going to be sad if people stop buying books. And the book business is is in a state of high confusion over that.
1: Nora Ephron, uh, things that surprise people is an essay in I Remember Nothing, your new book, and uh, you make one of these things that surprise people.
0: It's not. It's not things that surprise people. It's It's, you have to say it exactly. Okay. Sorry. It's, It's. things people have a shocking capacity to be surprised by over and over again.
1: Right. And in terms of that, uh, one of the things you say is movies have no political effect whatsoever.
0: Mm-hmm. I believe that.
1: Do you think that carries over to a place like this radio station, or do you think it's just because people want to be entertained by film?
0: I think that film has a has a built-in thing that here's what a movie is, okay? An appealing character strives against great odds to achieve a worthwhile goal. That is a movie. That if you want to make a movie about an unappealing character, write a play. Movies want to like the person. They want to like a photogenic person. It's very hard to make a movie about someone people don't like. And it's one of the things I think is so amazing about the social network is that it's a cold movie and we're not used to that at all. We're not used to a movie where where we don't quite know who the hero of it is exactly. Um, so, So, you know, that... That is the main thing that happens with movies. And the result of it is that a Charles Bronson movie about a vigilante killer um, is on some level the same plot as Silkwood. And in some way, the the need to make a movie about a likable person on a goal, on a quest for a goal, Squeezes most of the politics out of movies,
1: and w- when politics is left, I mean, there's some politics say in in a movie, even like Avatar. But does that even make a difference? What what politics? Well, was the that ecological now? stuff.
0: Oh yes, and look how much good it did. The biggest movie, the most successful movie ever made, and we cannot get climate change legislation through a Congress with a Democratic majority.
1: But, of course, another thing that we shouldn't be surprised by at all, but keep being surprised by, is that the Democrats are deeply disappointing.
0: That's right. The (laughs) Democrats are deeply disappointing. And yet every time it happens, we go, what happened? What happened? We had the majority.
1: Um, Would you ever consider directing a musical?
0: A musical movie? Um, I would consider directing a movie with music in it. Absolutely. But a musical in the old-fashioned um, walking down the street and singing a song, no.
1: Mm-mm. Why not?
0: No, I just don't know how to do it now. I don't know how you do it.
1: Sondheim said that nobody can really do it unless it's a fantasy in another world because yeah, so people right, don't do it's that. It's
0: an on-stage musical like Cabaret, and, yeah. and the singing is all being done in a theater.
1: Right. Uh, well, his comment was that what it comes down to is that film is repertorial.
0: I'll have to think about that.
1: <laughs> um, one pet peeve of mine in You've Got Mail is the happy ending um, because it seemed to belie the fact that um, when independent bookstores go out of business, some th- the thing that takes their place will somehow be a good thing. And yet, I didn't see that with Borders when it drove out the independent stores or Barnes and & Noble. And, of course, I don't see it now when the online places like Amazon are even driving out Barnes & Noble.
0: But what did that have to do with whether the two of them ended up together?
1: Well, I was thinking the happy ending of her being in the store, not the happy ending of the two of them ending up together?
0: Well, but the truth is that, that especially when that movie was being made, the independent stores were being put out of business. I mean, one of the things I like about the movie is that it doesn't save that independent store in a way that, um, that would truly have been some kind of... Who are we kidding? Fantasy. There are people with successful independent bookstores. And it's fantastic when there are and when they are supported by their communities. But I can't believe what's happened in New York City. I cannot believe how many independent stores we've lost.
1: Well, that's – I guess for me it was – it was like, you know, this this big bookstore was suddenly open to doing what smaller stores do. Of course, the difference is that by now, the Tom's Hanks character would probably be out say, of business. It
0: didn't say that the big bookstore was open to doing what smaller stores do.
1: Well, she was doing reading in the store, as just as she did in her little store.
0: She was not.
1: Wasn't she at the end? I thought she was reading to people, to the kids, and she was...
0: You have... You have imagined that. So that movie ends when she finds out who he is. In the park. We're but we're both talking about you've got mail, the movie that, yeah. that yes, and that movie ends.
1: But there's a there's a little after that. There's kind of an epilogue, isn't there? Or am no. I completely wrong?
0: You are completely wrong. But it's okay. I'll cut that. No, no, it's all right. You can leave it in. No, I won't. Okay. Well, it's your your show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought that there was. Well, she meets him in the park, and that's the real ending of the film. But what am and I? She, I don't know. I thought there was a sequence early on where maybe she's not doing it, but someone else is in that store. I'll have to go back my memory.
0: Um, S- Steve Zahn, who worked for her. Maybe he. But he, you don't see him in it. No. I Maybe
1: think. I must be imagining it.
0: Well, I don't think you do. Well, anyway, whatever. Anyway, okay.
1: anyway, n- never mind. Um, boy, I fucked up there.
0: That's okay. Uh, you could be right.
1: No, no. Um, the other, one other fascinating thing is how you've taken in both You've Got Mail and in Sleepless in Seattle, you've taken... Romantic films and updated them specifically updated them and you've got mail and Sleepless in Seattle uh, used um, an affair to remember as a key element of of the plot and you've also talked uh, there was a New Yorker uh, profile of you where you talked about the importance of those old romantic films and how they can be still used today and updated.
0: I don't have. I don't remember what I said in the New York. Okay,
1: all right. Um, so I guess I'll drop that line yeah. of questions. Yeah, no, you
0: can ask me the question, but I don't know how to answer it. Yeah. The way you've asked
1: it. Okay, I, I guess what I'm saying is that you know, going back, going back to those older films and seeing how they resonate can almost create a new kind of film today.
0: Well, it can and it can't because the. The older films had conventions that are very difficult today. They had obstacles that don't exist anymore. Um, you know, one of the the main obstacles in, in romantic comedy is class, but there are no class obstacles any longer, right. really. Uh, rich people marry poor people all the time, and it's not that big a deal. So... So finding the obstacle is tricky, and what I thought was so delicious about Sleepless in Seattle when I read the original draft that didn't work um, at all was that it had come up with the ultimate obstacle, which was that they didn't know each other, and I just thought that was so hilarious that we had now reached the point where we were so desperate for obstacles we had to come up with with one that was simply inarguable. You could never say—you could never argue with that as an obstacle to, to love. So,
1: Well, I've noticed actually putting together—it just occurred to me that three films, Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, and Julie and Julia, are essentially two stories— each one of them has two stories that you put together, and yeah. that, that seems to be it's not a common thing in films to necessarily have two completely separate stories that somehow come together like that.
0: Well, Sleepless in Seattle and Julie and Julia, that's really true of. You've got male, They come together all the time.
1: Yeah, but their lives are so separate.
0: Well, that's because they're just getting to know each other,
1: right? So that one yeah. you think is different,
0: yeah. That I mean, that's based on the shop around the corner, and uh, and which is a great movie with Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart, and and it, that that follows the line of that almost completely.
1: But the other two do not.
0: The other two are very, very modern, I think. I mean, I think when Harry Met Sally is is a very modern movie, um, where, you know, two people decide not to fall in love. Mm. That's you know, that's I just thought that's a Rob Reiner's idea and it was just a great idea. The minute I heard it, I thought that's a great idea for a movie. By the time I had gotten home in a taxi cab going only 20 blocks, I knew the structure of it. It was just, I just thought, this is a great idea. And that's a great obstacle,
1: is that decision that we're just going to be friends. And and a film like Julie and Julia is very, very different. Um, One complaint about it is that the Meryl Streep side of it so overwhelms the Julie side of it um, because maybe it's just because Streep is so pitch perfect. Though, I don't know. I mean, I interviewed Julie Powell and Amy Adams is pitch perfect too.
0: I know. So, you know, I mean, Meryl got to do a real tour de force, you know, and she did it. And it's a great, great performance. But Julie Pell has the harder performance, which is that she's just playing an ordinary person, and I thought she did an amazing job.
1: Do you think the movie just would have worked as Julia Child? But no,
0: or Julie Pell. No, it's it would just have been a docu, you know, a biopic if it had been just Julia Child. That what what I loved about it was that. It's a a movie about a book. It's a movie about how a book changes your life, whether you are the author of the book or 50-some-odd years later, the reader of the book. And that is, to me, you know, when we talk about print, I mean, that to me is what is so sad about books is that we all know books change your life in a way that almost nothing does.
1: And... What I wonder if on some unconscious level then maybe movies can change us but never in the way that we think they can.
0: I'm just saying politically right. movies don't have much effect. But personally, we certainly, you know, they can warp us. They can make us romantic, which may be a form of warping. Um, We certainly know from the number of letters we get that it changes the glasses people wear and the clothes they wear, but I just don't think they almost ever do the things we hope sometimes they'll do, which which is to change the world.
1: Nora Ephron, now you've finished I Remember Nothing and Other Reflections. Are you working on another book? You said you have a couple of things in mind what for a screenplay.
0: What do me? I just finished this one.
1: <laughs> I always That's always the last question yeah. I ask. Okay, let me, let me rephrase that. Um, Nora Ephron, you just um, have published I Remember Nothing and Other Reflections. You said there's a play out there that you've finished as well? Yes. And that will hopefully see the light of day in the next whenever.
0: In the next whenever, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And in terms of film, you're still, you've got two projects, but they're still in the back of your mind.
0: Yes. One of them is, one of them is started. So, you know, I have a lot of work. And now it's Christmas.
1: Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky Podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.